Luke chapter 19 is where we'll be reading this morning, verses 41 through 48. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 19, verses 41 through 48. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Father, we pray now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, give us insight, give us wisdom as we study scriptures today, and help us to have a, a better glimpse of our Savior and God through this text this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing our journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, and we're picking up where we left last time. Uh, with Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. As I pointed out last week, we're very near the final days of Jesus' life now. Uh, he will be killed, in fact, later this very week. Uh, the Jews in Jerusalem are thinking that Jesus was here to fight the Roman army and give them back their land, and of course that wasn't his intention at all. And so at this point in time, the crowds are on his side. They're excited about the future and what they mistakenly think that he will do. But those expectations will be sorely disappointed in just a few days when Jesus is arrested and crucified. We also mentioned last time that the religious le leaders are growing in their opposition to Jesus. Not only are they uh, despising him, of course they despised him all throughout his ministry, but at this point they're now wanting to kill him. And so while the crowds of the common people are excited that Jesus is finally here in the city of Jerusalem, the religious leaders are becoming more and more angry with his teaching. And so you have this heightened tension in these final chapters of Luke's Gospel. And Jesus, of course, only raises the tension higher. Uh, he walks into the city of Jerusalem, immediately goes to the temple, and begins, begins to make a scene. Verse 45 says, He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Now, if you're familiar with, I'm sorry, if you're unfamiliar with uh, Jewish temple worship, this will be a very confusing scene. And so I need to give you a little bit of a crash course on uh, what went on during the Passover week in Jerusalem. Passover to this day remains the most important event in the Jewish calendar. It was a time when the Jews would be required uh, to come to the temple. And so during this week, Jews from all over Israel would be coming to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, you may remember the origin of Passover, which was that time when the death angel passed over those houses uh, where the blood was on the doorposts. This annual celebration was a memorial to that event in Israel's history. And so each year during Passover week, Jews would come to the temple to offer sacrifices and to eat the Passover meal. You had to offer spotless lambs at the temple uh, for the sacrifices. If you were especially poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, the law permitted doves to be offered instead. And the whole thing was very symbolic. The lamb being killed was your substitute. It symbolically took the punishment for your sins on itself. And of course, as Christians, we know that this was ultimately pointing to Christ, the Lamb of God who would come and take on himself the sins of the world. 
But if you were a Jew in that day, headed to Jerusalem for Passover, you needed to prepare quite a bit. You needed pure lambs with no blemish or spot so that you could offer them as sacrifices. You needed uh, money to pay your temple tax. You needed unleavened bread to eat the Passover meal. And you had to lug all of this stuff from wherever you were coming from to Jerusalem. So for example, if like Jesus, you were a Jew living in Galilee, uh, that's an 80 mile trip on foot. Uh, that would be quite an inconvenience to bring all of these animals and all of these things that you needed for the Passover week. And as with most problems, what ended up happening is some people saw a business opportunity here. Uh, people began raising lambs and doves near Jerusalem, and they would set up little booths at the temple and sell them at an incredibly high rate. And people bought them, lots of people, uh, because it was way easier than having to take one of your own lambs for this long trip, not to mention there was an inspection of the animals at the temple. Uh, the priests would examine each lamb to make sure that it had no spot or freckle or anything. Uh, otherwise, it would be deemed unfit to sacrifice, and then you would have to buy a lamb anyways. And so you would have just wasted all of that effort bringing a lamb from home. So this sale of animals at the temple became a very lucrative business, and the religious leaders were right at the top of the scheme. Uh, they had arrangements with those who they let sell at the temple and as you might expect, uh, the inspections became more and more strict. If they could find something wrong with the lamb that you brought, uh, then you would be forced to pay for a replacement and they would get their cut. The whole thing was fraught with corruption and greed. You also had to pay a temple tax when you got there, uh, which this was, of course, how the priests were funded. They received their salaries from the, the taxes that were imposed on the people. But you couldn't pay it in Roman currency because Roman currency has a picture of Caesar on each coin, which was considered to be uh, idolatrous to bring something like that into the temple grounds. So you had to exchange your coins for shekels. And of course, there were booths for that too. Uh, money changers who would charge exorbitant rates to convert your currency. At the top of this whole operation were the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, who became incredibly wealthy as a result of these franchises that they sold to people who would then sell animals and convert your money for you at the temple. The common people were being ripped off, but there really wasn't much that they could do about it. These religious leaders were using their position to take advantage of these poor people, all in the name of spirituality. It was a disgrace to the temple and to the priesthood. And so Jesus did something about it. He comes into the city and he drives out those who were selling things at the temple. Matthew's account of this very same event says, Jesus entered the temple drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of so those who sold pigeons. Now this must have been uh, quite a commotion. You can imagine animals all running and flying around, coins scattered all over the floor, and people uh, scrambling to pick them up. And in the midst of all of this chaos, Jesus says in verse 46, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple was supposed to be a place of communion with God, a place where people could come and pray, confessing their sins to God, calling out for his forgiveness and help. Even back when Solomon first built the temple, that was the stated intention of this place. Uh, listen to the words of King Solomon back in Second Chronicles 6. This is at the dedication of the temple. He says, but, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You see there, Solomon recognizes that this house of God, this temple, 
It's not, it's not that God can be contained and actually live within the walls of that house. Rather, this is to be a meeting place with God. He continues in verse 19, You yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, speaking of the temple, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. This was the reason that the temple was built. It was a place for the people of Israel to come and pray to their God. Verse 22, Solomon continues in this prayer to God. He says, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and swears his oath before your altar, altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, the temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sins of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers." When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to, their, to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, the temple, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you toward this city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to, the, to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward this land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place 
And now arise, O Lord God, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. You can see there the emphasis of all of this is prayer. The temple was to be a place where people could come and pray to their God, and God would hear their prayers. The very next chapter, chapter 7 of of 2 Chronicles, verse 11 says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, speaking there of the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 13, he says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal, heal their land. By the way, let me just add at this point, uh, this is a verse you'll often hear applied to America, uh, but in reality, it is a promise to the people of Israel. God is saying to them that if you will come to the temple and repent of your sins, then I will hear, he, hear your prayer and forgive you. Verse 15, he continues, Now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. This was the purpose and the intention of the temple. It was a place for God's people to come and to pray to him. A place where God has promised that his name would be, that his presence would be felt, and that he would hear the prayers of his people. And the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, the very ones who were supposed to be facilitating worship and guiding the people spiritually, they were taking advantage of them and growing rich at their expense, ripping people off on the grounds of the temple itself. This sacred place where God had set his name, they were extorting people there. And so after driving out the money changers and those who sold animals, Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus was openly rebuking here some very powerful people in Jerusalem, and his actions here would cost them quite a bit financially. After all, this was the busiest and most profitable time of the year for them. Verse 47 says, he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not, they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. And so here we have the conflict that will continue throughout the next several chapters of Luke. Now, the religious leaders of Jerusalem hate Jesus and they want to kill him, but he's popular with the people right now. And they're afraid that if they tried to arrest him now, a mob would end up defending him. And so they wait for an opportunity, a time when Jesus would be away from the crowds, when he would be vulnerable. And in the end, Judas Iscariot gives them that opening. He tells them about a little garden that Jesus likes to go to pray at night. It's a place where he's alone, a place where they could take him and arrest him. And of course, for their plot against him to work, eventually they'll have to convince the people to go along with this too. News would break out that Jesus had been arrested, and so they needed to hurt Jesus' reputation. They needed his popularity with the people to plummet. And so in the coming chapters, we will see one after another, the religious leaders opposing Jesus, challenging his authority, trying to ask him gotcha questions uh, to turn people against him. And in the end, they succeed in their plot and they kill him. Now, you might be wondering, what about those four verses that I skipped over uh, right at the beginning? You might think maybe I forgot about those. Not so. 
Uh, let's look at those now. These come right before Jesus drives out the money changers and the sellers at the temple. Verse 41 says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, we've talked about this before, and it will come up again next week in the text we look at in Luke 20, so I don't want to go into great detail here. But Jesus is speaking of the coming judgment against Jerusalem, the city that rejected their Messiah and ultimately had him crucified. They would be punished severely for their actions. The Roman army came less than 40 years later and slaughtered them. This is a well-attested event in secular history. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus led his troops to surround the entire city of Jerusalem. They built a barricade around the walls of the city so nobody could get out. And for the next five months, uh, there was this siege. The inhabitants of the city had no, no hope of escaping. Uh, they were completely surrounded. And 100,000 Jews in Jerusalem starved to death during these, these months. With the Jews now weak and dying, the Romans broke through the barricade that they had set up and they attacked Jerusalem. It was a brutal and bloody war. And in the end, the Romans burned the city to the ground, completely destroying the temple. Over half a million Jews were killed, and those that survived were taken for the gladiatorial games. Devastating destruction and death. And Jesus predicted it 40 years before it took place. Numerous times in the book of Luke, we find clear and specific details about this coming judgment of God against Jerusalem. And here is just one such place. Verse 43, Jesus says, The days will come upon you when your enemies, speaking of the Romans, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They'll tear you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Again, we're going to talk about this more next week and also in chapter 21, where Jesus goes into even more detail about these prophesied events. But for now, notice his attitude about this. Jesus isn't smugly taunting them. That's probably what I would have done. Uh, if I knew that these people were going to arrest me and kill me, I probably would have been like, yeah, you, you think you got me now, just wait, your day is coming. But that, that wasn't Jesus' attitude at all. He's weeping. The word for weeping back in verse 41 isn't just that he had a tear in his eye, it's more like sobbing uncontrollably. He's not weeping for himself, but for them. Not for his coming death, but for theirs. He's weeping for his enemies. The very people who would condemn Jesus to be tortured and killed, he is grieved as he thinks about the judgment that will come against them. Such a contrast from so many of us who would rejoice at the misfortune of our enemies. Even prophets like Jonah in the Old Testament who anticipated God's destruction of Nineveh with glee, but not Jesus. He weeps for them longing that they would turn and live. He says there, would that you had known the things that make for peace. He wishes that they wouldn't commit this terrible act of killing the Son of God, but he knows that they will. And so he weeps for them. This reminds me of the words of God to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33, where he says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God gets no pleasure from the death of the wicked. He longs for their repentance. God is both just and patient. Yes, he is loving and merciful, but he will also judge those who take advantage of that grace. 
But even in the midst of that judgment, he's not flippant or uncaring. He's grieved. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. This is how God has revealed himself throughout Scripture. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. He is a just God. He will send judgment, but he is slow to do so. And even when he does, he longs for the wicked to turn and live. Jesus displays the anger of God against sin when he drives out the money changers in the temple. You can see that he's obviously very passionate about the justice of God. He's very angry at this sin that's taking place in front of him. But Jesus also displays the tender heart of God when he weeps for his enemies. And as Christians, this is a balance that we need to be careful to get right. Uh, some Christians are all about the love of God. They love the idea that uh, God loves everybody, that he's merciful and gracious. And the idea that God could get angry and send judgment on someone seems impossible to them. Uh, they'll say things like, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. And yet he does. He tells us that he does. He sends judgment all throughout Scripture on those who will not repent of their sins. Other Christians are all about the judgment side of God. They love the image of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. And you can normally tell these people by looking at their social media, uh, constantly blasting people they disagree with, weaponizing the Bible against those that they may dislike. They seem to think that, think that the most Christian thing to do in any situation is whatever will make people the most angry. And these Christians need to remember the weeping of Christ, the tender heart of God that longs for sinners to repent and escape his wrath, the love of God that went as far as to send his son to die in the place of rebel sinners. We must hold these two aspects of God's heart in tension. And perhaps no place in the entire Gospel of Luke shows these both right next to each other quite as clearly as this text in Luke 19. You have the anger of Jesus against sin right next to the weeping of Jesus in light of the coming judgment. And we see God's heart in this. God is just. He does judge sinners. But he does so as a loving parent disciplines a child, hoping that they will do right and seeking their ultimate good. The same Jesus who angrily throws out the money changers also sobs at their coming destruction. Even in the midst of God's judgment, there is a tear in his eye. 